I'm Catherine Lanfer, and you're listening to The Rise of the Islamists on America Abroad. The Arab Awakening wasn't a religious revolution, but it left in its wake political parties with Islam at their center. So now, with this new political landscape, how should the United States go forward? Joining me to answer that question is Shadi Hamid, Director of Research at the Brookings Doha Center, and Robert Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Shadi, I want to start with you. We know the Arab awakening was fueled by a constellation of factors. So what does it really say that in its wake we're looking at a wave of political parties with religion at their core? Well, it's not a surprise at all. Um, Arabs generally are quite religious. They want to see Islam playing a larger role in their societies. All the polling we have makes that very clear. I think um, some Western analysts were maybe projecting a little bit and hoping that this would be some kind of secular revolution. And that was understandable. I mean, the most visible faces in the Egyptian revolution were young tech-savvy liberals. But I think we just have to accept that um, more democracy means religion is going to play a larger role in public life. So I think here there was there was almost this desire on the part of Western analysts to kind of say, well, um, Egyptians are going to become fluffy secular liberals once they have freedom. And I think um, that's just simply not true. Robert Satloff? Well, I take a, a somewhat different view. First of all, I think it's a mistake to say that these are parties with Islam at their core. These are parties that have Islamism at their core. The distinction is how one translates belief into political action. Now, it is, it is absolutely true that we underestimated the extent to which uh, the Egyptian voters supported parties that advocated a certain view of Islam in public life. Um, I think most analysts got the Muslim Brotherhood share of the vote right, but we totally miss the idea that an even more extreme form of Islamism, called Salafism, could grab the attention of a quarter of the Egyptian electorate, which is more than all the non-Islamists got put together. Shadi Hamid, this this, uh, distinction that Robert Satloff is making uh, between what exactly we mean when we talk about an Islamist uh, political party. How do you look at it? Well, I don't think the distinction is that clear. Um, there isn't really this concept of separation of religion from politics in Islam as it exists in Christianity. Um, most Muslims, religious or not, would agree that Islam has a role to play in public life. So if you talk to the average Egyptian and say, well, can't you separate this and keep religion private? That's not really going to go very far. And even the word secular is a bad word in a place like Egypt. And even secularists don't call themselves that precisely because they understand this. So I'm not sure if the distinction really helps us understand the Arab world any better. Um, You know, with a party such as the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the United States in the past has been reluctant uh, to even really be seen with with some of its members. Um, So what choices are in front of the United States right now? Well, it's absolutely true that the U.S. um, uh, doesn't have much direct relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood for the last, um, for many decades, uh, both because of the views that the Muslim Brotherhood has held and because regimes in this part of the world viewed the Muslim Brotherhood as a threat and urged us not to have a relationship. 
now that the Muslim Brotherhood is looks like they're on the verge of forming a government in such a central country like Egypt, of course we'll have a relationship with them. I think what is essential is that our relationship be based on our interests, not just because the Muslim Brotherhood won an election and therefore they get a free pass. Um, so, for example, the most important interests that we have vis-a-vis -vis Egypt are Egypt's role um, in uh, regional security, counterterrorism, peace with Israel, and then domestically, to the extent to which the government of Egypt supports a pluralistic society in which all elements of society, Christians and Muslims, etc., have full and equal rights. If that is not uh, the baseline of our relationship, then we shouldn't have the same sort of special relationship that we had under the Mubarak regime. Shadi Hamid? Well, I think we made a very big mistake by not engaging with the Muslim Brotherhood years ago. And that's what many of us were calling for as early as 2005, 2006. But unfortunately, the U.S. was very slow to the game here. And now we're in a position where there's a new Egypt and we don't have a good relationship with the most powerful actor in the country. That puts us, America, in a very weak position. This was a major oversight and a major mistake as for the special relationship we had with Egypt, Mubarak was one of the most repressive autocrats and he was around for a while suppressing his own people, yet we still had a special relationship with him then. So I think it's a little bit odd to hear that if the Brotherhood does certain things that we don't like, the special relationship will fall apart. And I think this is reflective of of a little bit of a double standard. We supported an autocratic regime. And now we have to try to undo that and get it right and really atone for that, I think. Here, I, I disagree with, uh, with Shadi on this. I think we have nothing to apologize for by not having a relationship with um, a political movement that was so virulently anti-American for decades, that opposed our, our fundamental beliefs, that opposed our fundamental interests, opposed the concept of peace in the Middle East. And our best efforts should have been, which we didn't do enough, was advancing the political prospects of individuals and parties that actually do support our values and interests. Chadi, I want you to address this as well. There's been fear, uh, and, and Robert uh, referenced this, the, the, the fear that, that women, religious minorities, and, and liberals have, that, that any gains that they've had, and this goes not only for Egypt, but, but in other countries, um, the fear that they have that any gains they have are going to be taken back. How do you address that? Well, yeah, they're right. The Brotherhood doesn't believe in women's equality the way we as Americans do. The Brotherhood is not liberal, and that's where me and Rob are in agreement. The Brotherhood is really socially conservative, and they're going to take a lot of positions that we as Americans are uncomfortable with. But I don't feel comfortable as an American telling an Egyptian, listen, you guys have to be liberal because that's the best thing in the world. No, my fundamental principle is democracy, that people have the right to vote for their own representatives, and then they have to take responsibility for their choice. And um, we should do what we can to encourage the Brotherhood to take better positions on women's issues, on the rights of the Christian minority. Certainly, that's something that we should care about. But these are conservative societies, and I don't know if we should go in and try to support those who are more liberal over those who are less liberal. I'm not sure if that's our role to play. But ultimately, the issue with Egypt very specifically is that this is a country that receives well over a billion dollars of American assistance. So it is not a 
normal relationship that we have. It is a very special relationship. And uh, the, the question in front of Americans is, um, what benchmarks must the Egyptians meet in order to continue to merit this sort of assistance? The two foreign ones have to do with counterterrorism and peace with Israel, and the domestic one has to do with pluralism. And if we can't sustain that, then it's very difficult, it seems to me, to argue to the American people that more than a billion dollars worth of assistance is merited to this new government of Egypt. We keep focusing on Egypt, but there are other countries, obviously. Talk about the Salafis um, and uh, other political parties in Tunisia, for instance. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Tunisia is quite fascinating because there is now an Islamist prime minister. Unlike in Egypt, where Islamists don't rule quite yet, might happen soon, but still, in Tunisia, they are in a position of governing and implementing their program. So Tunisia has in some ways become a model for others to watch because their transition has gone, gone by much smoothly. And you don't see the level of ideological polarization, polarization that you see in, say, Egypt, where no one seems to get along. Tunisia has a coalition government between liberals, leftists, and Islamists. They're effectively sharing power. So the Islamist party that's governing there is considered to be one of the more moderate um, Islamist parties in the region, much closer to the Turkish model of uh, Prime Minister Erdogan, where they have they have um, become more moderate on things like women, women's rights, pluralism, and are saying all the right things. Now, of course, they're going to have to show that in practice as a governing party. Tunisia does have the potential to be much more of a success, in my view, than, than, uh, than Egypt. Uh, the political culture is different. Um, the role of the army in Tunisia is very different. Tunisia is not the militarized state that Egypt has been for the last 60 years. The army came in, got rid of the dictator, and then went back to the barracks right away. It's a great model. In Egypt, it's very different. Um, even so, I think we should be quite concerned that the, that the, the, uh, the Islamists in, in, in Tunisia still don't have all the right answers. And while there is a coalition government and there is secularists and liberals working with the Islamists, I think we should be quite wary of um, the sorts of uh, both foreign policy and even on some domestic issues, role of women, roll back on huge advances for women that uh, Tunisia does face. So much attention has been focused on the Arab awakening, as, as it's now called, but there has been a turnover and change in this region before, uh, the revolution in Iran <laughs> at the very least. So talk about what history is useful here. What can we look at that could, and what could the leaders of these countries now look at that would be useful as they face choices ahead? You know, I, I don't think the Iranian revolution has much relevance, and I'd, we'd probably do better not to try to draw too many comparisons. First of all, the Iranian revolution, it led to Shia Islamists coming to power. The Shia tradition is very different when it comes to the understanding of governance. And I've been, from my research, meeting with leaders of Islamist parties since 2005, and never once have I heard even one of them mention Iran as a model, not one. So I think actually the more relevant comparisons historically are in Latin America, Eastern Europe, elsewhere where you've seen democratic transitions that lead to elections. Because of course, in Iran, 
the Islamists there did not come to power through free and fair elections. But here in Egypt, in Tunisia, you see free elections. So people are making their own choices and that has to be the organizing principle that all of us should encourage and accept that people vote for who they want. Look, the, the great lesson of the, of the Iranian revolution is that what started out as a great coalition of democratic change within a year turned into a, um, uh, a tyranny of the most radical element in that coalition, namely uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's Islamist um, alternative. Slowly but surely, Khomeini eradicated everybody. Now, so far, we haven't seen that pattern elsewhere. But I do think that this idea that change opens up opportunities for the most radical to assert their authority over the entire populace, we have to be very much on the vanguard of watching out for this. We've been talking to Shadi Hamid, Director of Research at the Brookings Doha Center, and Robert Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time and for this discussion. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Rise of the Islamists. Our program was produced by Monica Bushman, Joseph Browdy, David Enders, Julia Simon, and Flan Williams. Steve Martin is our director of broadcasting and station relations. Four Piece Suit composed our theme music. I'm Catherine Lanfer, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this program is provided by the Henry Luce Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Stewart Family Foundation, and the American Interest, a magazine devoted to illuminating America's global role. Support also comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI. Public Radio International.